Hello and welcome to the Shut Your News Hole podcast. I am Frizzell Bailey. What follows is a discussion with Zach about his interview we aired last week with his brother Max. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. This podcast has bad words. So, Zach. Yes. Great, great interview. Um, so engaging. I, I, I really enjoyed it. How did it feel having that discussion with your brother? Have you got had you guys had that discussion before? Yeah, um, as you recall, he was he's been clean for about three years, um, and and I did do an article about him, which I think people can see um, if they want to check it out. But you know, we we've discussed it. Um, the whole family does. One of the things uh, that recovering addicts have to do is they have to own up to what they did, and not and, and not forget it, not pretend it, it never happened. Um, and so he doesn't have a problem at all talking about it. If, for example, I mean, if he did, he wouldn't have agreed to do this. And um, also, you know, maybe we threw in little jokes and stuff. In our family, maybe we deal with difficult things or even grief with dark gallows humor. So, I mean, we actually still make jokes about him when he was, you know, real, you know he, might, he, might, he, makes, he makes jokes about it, you know, himself. And so it's, it's discussed in the family. It's not hidden at all. And it is what it is. You know, it's just part of the history. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so it wasn't difficult to talk about it. Well, one of the things that stood out for me was, at least from your point of view, was the comment that you thought he, that you thought you were, the, the comment that you had written him off for dead. So can, can you say a little bit more about that? Well, um, I think that the less, you know, emotionally attached you are to somebody, the less it will hurt when they die. And that was kind of my reasoning. So I just, you know, I mean, I would try to help them out here and there when I could, but, you know, after, after a number of years, you know, it becomes obvious when someone's just beyond help or they, they seem to be, there's nothing you can say or do that's going to change them. You know, I've tr- I had tried it all throughout the years. And so, you know, you know that a lot of times people that are addicted to opioids are going to OD, which my brother did, um, but he didn't die, obviously. So, yeah, I just figured it'll be easier to deal with that sobbing phone call that I'll get from my mom telling me that, you know, Max is found dead. And I, you know, it it was somewhat easy to stay distant from him when he was a user because he was some, you know, he was a surly person and we just really didn't have much to talk about. There wasn't, you know, he, I always like to talk about, you know, sometimes intellectual things. There was not much going on there. And, um, and then just other than that, I would just try not to think about when he was real little, you know, I, I was 15 years old when he was born. So of course, you know, that was a lot of fun and having this cute little brother and taking him on walks in the stroller and all that stuff. You know, I just would try not to think about it or, or if it'd be flipping through photos of the family and see him when he was like young. And, and you know, I, I would just not look at the picture, you know, flip through it real quick, just kind of, you know, and, and a lot of times when my phone would rig, there was always a part of me that just was like, all right, you know, am I going to hear my mom on the other voice sobbing? You know, you just, I was just expecting it had to say yeah i know what you mean my my family had has um 
substance abuse and alcoholism as well. And I had this, um, my, my, my uncle, Excel, mm -hmm. struggled in the, in the 80s and well through the 90s with uh, drug addiction, uh, mainly with, uh, well, it started with cocaine. And mm -hmm. of course, it was the 80s, so it moved on to crack. Right. Um, so I, I know that feeling where you want to be available, you want to be uh, supportive, but you're also feeling helpless. Mm -hmm. And then there's the actual very real issue of like, my God, what if he didn't have somewhere to stay and he needed to stay at my house? Uh, what is going to disappear the next day? You know, because exactly. junkies steal, they just do. Right. You know? and so there's that part too. Um, well, and my, my uncle uh, ended up, I don't know if he was high at the time, mm -hmm. but this was probably the late 90s, early 2000s. My, my grandparents had both passed and he was at their home and he was cooking and burned the entire house down with, with oh. everything in it. So all the family memorabilia, all the pictures, oh, photos, everything was gone most important stuff wow right i mean he, he did clean up after that yeah but you know for a long time i was i was very resentful that he destroyed all of those memories yeah that's a tough one you know my brother did nothing close to that but after my grandmother passed um she always had a tradition of giving us two dollar bills and so my dad had you know, collected a bunch that were laying around the house and was holding on to them. And um, he was planning on sending each one of my cousins and siblings a $2 bill. And one day he went and they were gone. And, you know, Max had stolen them. And of course, you know, addicts will just lie. They will look at you and they will lie. I remember one time I read in a book and they said that, um, you know, how did it go? And an alcoholic, you know, some an alcoholic and a junkie steal your wallet, you know, but the junkie will actually help you go and look for it. <laughs> if I phrase that right, meaning that they're just, you know, they they they'll lie and they don't, you know, like so easily, like yeah, they'll take your wallet and be like, yeah, okay, let's 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 for it, and spend the day helping you find the wallet they stole. So yeah, that's the other thing. You just don't want your stuff to get stolen too. Or you don't want someone to OD in your house. Right. You no. Know, when my brother OD'd the second time when he almost died, luckily he was at my parents' house. People can read about that in the article included. Um, but yeah, and I remember one time uh, he came to my house. He said he was on his way to work and he needed to stop by because he said he had to take a shit. I'm like, all right. Right away, my bullshit detectors go off. And I'm like, fine. He comes over, you know, and he goes into the to the bathroom. He's in there for a little while. And then he comes out and he was just different. I'm like, oh, man, he totally must have shot up. <laughs> and he was sluggish and he loved you and hugged me and left. And I remember looking out the window as he walked away and I was like, fuck, this is messed up. And I called my other brother. I'm like, dude, Max just came over and pretty sure he shot up in the bathroom. So I don't know, it's, it's here or there, but I think what's also interesting about um, as far as my relationship with Max goes, is, like I mentioned, I was 15 years old when he was born and, you know, little kids are little kids. 
And then I go off, go to college, move out, and I'm doing my thing. And he's, you know, and then as he mentioned, he started using drugs pretty young. And that dominated his life and, and changed him, I'm sure, and probably arrested his development in certain ways. And, and I knew even when he was a junkie, I'm like, you know, he was a surly person, not easy to get along with. And I knew, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know who this person is, really, to yeah. tell you the truth. And I didn't know what was under there or not. And so I think the, one of the most amazing things about his recovery is that there's this, you know, witty, curious person under there that I, that I didn't know existed. I just didn't. And that I think has been, you know, one of the most wonderful things about it is that um, not only is he clean, but he's, he's likable and he's funny, you know? Yeah. That, that was the thing. One of the things that struck me in the interview was, I haven't met him, and aside from a, a, a few brief messages when we were talking about doing doing this podcast, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about him. But you guys sound so much alike. I was I was I was a little floored by it because it's it's a very similar sensibility and sense of humor, and it, it was kind of touching actually. That's oh, thanks. Yeah. Um... All of my siblings, we all have, I guess, what you would call a major sense of humor. And I mean, and like I said before, one of the things that we still do is maybe even tease them about it or just, you know, talk about ironic, funny parts of the whole drug thing. You know, another thing I I find amazing is just um, how my parents handled it. You know, I can't imagine how difficult it was for them. But, you know, they, they handled it and, and it was difficult. They also lived their lives and, and didn't let it, you know, ruin their lives, you know, right. which I think. But it had, it had to weigh heavily on them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think probably one of the hardest things is when they had to like boot them out for good. You know, that that's not easy, but you have to do it because what happened, what was happening was that, you know, by allowing him to stay with them, they were enabling him. Right. And they knew that. And so they had to make that tough decision. But that worked. That, you know, kind of freaked out my brother. Um, and he didn't want to end up homeless. And so sometimes tough yeah. love works, I guess. Well, an- another thing that struck me about the discussion, uh, just from my experience with my, my uncle, was that he didn't talk a lot about run-ins with the police. Mm-hmm. Has he ever talked to any, any about that? Do you have any of those experiences? No, he really lucked out, man. He has he never gotten any trouble with the law. It's amazing. He, I think, what did he say? He got some form of hepatitis, but yeah. that will be cured. So other than that, he got he got out of it. I would but say got free. Who knows? But he never. Yeah, he never got anything. Um, never got arrested or anything like that. I know he got robbed a couple of times and, you know, sure creepy stuff happened to him um, over the years because you deal with... But do you think that's a function of the the difference between the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic? I don't know. I think Max just lucked out, really. I think that any type of addict, whether it's crack or, or an opioid, if they they want it and they need it they're going to do what they have to do to get it and that oftentimes results in some type of crime 
So well, I'm not so much talking about criminal activity. Oh. Maybe it's just the nature of the drug. So my understanding, I'm, I've never done opium, mm-hmm. but my understanding of it is that it, it, it kind of, you know, puts you in a kind of a, a relaxed, maybe catatonic state, whereas crack can give right. you the opposite because it's cocaine and you have all this energy and you're hyperactive and you get, you get into shit. You're more likely to, yeah, go out and paint the town when you're on crack as opposed to when you're like nodding off on heroin, right? I see what you mean. I was just thinking, yeah, in terms of just when the person is no longer high and wants to get high again. But yeah, that's a good point. I think that, um, you know, like I just said, heroin doesn't, or opioids in general are typically, yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it hits people different. I mean, it's all, it's not, you know, sometimes people shoot up and they nod off and they're like barely awake. Yeah. Sometimes they can do a, a, le- a smaller amount and be up and around, but yeah, it's definitely not um, a stimulant like crack is. So that might have something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And your brother got, well, when, or your, I'm sorry, your uncle got in trouble with the law or? Oh, several times. I'm, I was pretty young for some of it. So I don't remember the details mm-hmm. of a lot of it. So I don't know what kind of, what the, what the reasons were that he were, he was being interacting with police. But I do remember having to go visit him in, in a, um, uh, a detention center, you know, before your, before your, your court date uh-huh. and just being completely terrified, you know, it's, yeah. I don't know if, if, if you've ever had to go visit someone who's who's a you know in jail or in prison, I did one article. the The whole experience is is unpleasant, both for the person in in the facility and for whoever's coming to visit. Yeah, I I just remember thinking, you know, I don't I don't want to do anything wrong because I don't want to end up in here either. Yeah, how is <laughs> is your uncle still around? Is or he passed away in what was it, two thousand eight? I want to say, and it was it was kind of a sad story because he had finally gotten clean, you know, had a had a stable life, you know, finally had a stable relationship with someone, and one night he woke he he woke up and was like I can't breathe, and by the time the the ambulance got there he was gone. So oh, what was it a heart yeah, attack? Yeah, I mean, huh? A heart attack or just. I'm not even I'm not even clear on it. All I know is that he was having trouble breathing, and by the time they got there, there was there was nothing they could do. It, it was it was over. How old was he? Um, he was in his fifties. Yeah, that's still. Um, but it was it was sad because he has spent most of his adult life, you know, battling these addictions, mm-hmm. and then he finally turned it around, and something else took him. Yeah. Yeah, that's very sad. Really tragic, you know. And that's that's the things that you know these hardcore drug addictions do is they really arrest your development, and you know you you have to do a lot of learning afterward about how to function in society normally. And luckily, Max is doing pretty pretty well at it. You know, he some friends that he knew from uh, I think I'm not sure how I knew him. It might have been through the drug rehabilitation stuff, but got him a job at, you know, selling cars. And it turned out that he was like, he's good at it. And he makes, makes a good living and he loves what he does. It's astonishing. Well, 
Well, one of the things he said, which might, which might have something to to lend to, you know, the idea of um, my uncle and and his sobriety, was your brother said that a lot of addicts think that you know there's time. I have, I'm I'm young enough. There's time for me to get it together. So they they put it off and they put it off, and then you know some other shit happens. Mm-hmm. Or I think what happens is maybe people think there's time, there's time, and then one day you open your eyes and you're 30, you know, which being 45 now doesn't seem that old. But I remember when I turned 30, it just seemed shocking that it had, that seemed old and it seemed to have happened fast. And I remember thinking to myself how Max is going to like one day realize, holy shit, you know, I'm quote unquote old and what have I done? Nothing. And then I always thought that like he would probably get hit with serious depression, you know, the type of just like I threw my life away. Luckily, it, that didn't happen. But but I think, yeah, um, I, I mean, I know that older people can get hooked on drugs later in their life. But, yeah, there does seem to, there's something to maybe, yeah, that younger people think, eh, you know, I can have my fun and get out of it or how many of my own idols we're addicted to drugs and then they're clean and they seem fine. I'll do the same thing, but yeah. it's not simple. Um, well, what, what did you think about, he, he talked quite a bit about manipulating doctors into getting his high. Yeah, that I hadn't heard him say that before. Um, and yeah, I wasn't really aware of it. Um, but in retrospect, I think it makes sense. Because I know of people who abuse Suboxone, which is a, a drug that apparently makes it so that the heroin or whatever doesn't affect you, doesn't get you high, or maybe it doesn't even feel good. But it also apparently is supposed to keep the cravings at bay. Mm-hmm. But I know, because I know of somebody who, you know, breaks them up and snorts them and just wonder to myself, like, okay, that seems odd, you know. Well, I, don't, you snorted, I don't know what you, to say. If you snorted, it, it gets into your bloodstream faster. Right. So it's clearly doing something for him that it clearly feels better to do it that way, apparently, than the other way. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, or, of course, an addict could get something like that and then sell it and then buy, you know, the actual thing. So but for me, the, the larger thing was the larger question was, do doctors get any training on how to navigate interactions with addicts? It's a good question. Um, because I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know how to deal with that. If, yeah. if, if someone is telling you they're in pain and mm-hmm. part of, part of your treatment of them is, you know, taking what they say to be somewhat factual. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, exactly. And also, when you're just a, a physician, you're, you're not that person's therapist. You probably don't really know that person very well at all, if at all. So it's yeah, it, hard it to be, it be, if the person's gaming you or if they're just normal and honest. Yeah, yeah. It know. could be it could it could be the first time you've ever treated this person, so you have no frame of reference as to whether or not they're truthful. It seems like a huge uh, weak spot in the healthcare system. Yeah, I, would. I never thought about it. 
Yeah, I haven't either. That's interesting. Um, I'll, maybe Max will have some insight on that. I can ask him. I can also probably Google it. But yeah, clearly the, it's a big problem. And, um, and, and it, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think there's any easy fixes, obviously, but I do think that it's something that's going to require significant um, support from government in terms of at least funding different types of programs or, or halfway homes and things like that. Um, from what I understand, it doesn't seem like a heck of a lot has been, been done about it in the last couple of years. Um, I haven't heard yeah. much about it. It just seems to be floating there like usual. Yeah, but when you, when you think about drug treatment overall throughout the decades, when have we ever done it well? No, we haven't. And that's probably also because there's this, you know, feeling in society that drug users are bad. Why help bad people? You know, and certainly during the crack epidemic, which affected, you know, black community by far larger than any community, then you could also just add the whole racist element to it. And so, yeah, why are we going to spend all these resources to just help these people who are just bad and losers anyway? I mean, and that's another thing we, that my, we mentioned in the interview was that a, a lot of addicts, maybe most, aren't bad people. They just happen to be addicts. Right. But a I, lot of, I, oh, go on, sorry. Well, I, I can completely relate to that because with my uncle, he was one of the most creative and thoughtful people I knew. Mm -hmm. But if he got high enough, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna steal your money. He's, mm -hmm. he's going he's gonna to cause a fire. So it, it wasn't that he was a bad person. He might not be doing the, great, the greatest thing for himself and the family, but it wasn't like he was, you know, you know the, the, the incarnation of evil. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, see, the thing is, is that there's a lot of people um, in the country who are just very... Um, I don't know, socially conservative, and then they tend to be self-righteous, and therefore anybody who's done drugs is bad, and, and, you know, well, they're bad because they tried it to begin with, and therefore, you know, and, and it, there's like, it's been going through our society for a long time, all the way back to the temperance movement and whatnot, um, and as we know, sometimes that just causes more problems when you view substances in that way. Um, I mean, I'm speaking very broadly here, but if you look at you know, of course, certain countries in Europe, Northwestern Europe, they deal with, you know, their um, addicts in a different way than we do, probably in a more understanding way, approaching it as yeah, a medical problem, and maybe not so much judging the people. And I think that's something that holds this country back a little bit from maybe tackling our drug problems the way we should, or, or we, we, we talk about just building walls as if that will stop the drugs coming in, we know that won't. Um, instead of getting to the real root of the problem, and or how we to talk, fix or it. We talk but if you just demonize these people, then it's easy to, you know, why should you know? And maybe that's why there's more clamoring right now to get, you know, some more government money into helping addicts because this is a situation that's affecting a lot of white people, you know. And yeah. a lot of times it's it's easy to ignore something if it's not affecting someone you love. But then when it affects someone you love, you all of a sudden, oh, now you have a different view of it. So that might be part of it. But either way, it seems like not enough is being done. But that's just because government right now is 
not working because of our crazy president. So, Well, there's something to be said for your orientation to what addiction is, because historically in this country, the way we've treated it was with incarceration. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're taking... If you're taking a point of view that drug abuse, drug addiction is a crime, mm-hmm. then the only solution is a police solution. Right. Which, which we we should know at this point that is not a, a police solution is not a solution. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And I don't know the numbers, but I do know that it costs a lot of money to um, incarcerate people. So it might even actually be more cost effective to help people with recovery programs instead of, uh, you know, what is it? Throwing them in jail, two cots in a hot, what are two hots in a cot? You know, that's not going to help them ultimately. I mean, I suppose it's well, a really bad crime, but you know, a lot of these people get, you know, criminal records for fairly small things, you know, or dealing small amounts of the drug and whatnot. And then and that bedevils them later too. Um, right. I mean, I, I don't want to get into that whole thing too much, but definitely we do know that a lot, most addicts are not bad people. And that, you know, there's even, um, some people are, are more biologically likely to become an addict than others too. So. Yeah. And I, I've thought about that quite a bit because with the addiction in my family, I don't know if you've had this, this before, but sometimes I just think, well, why didn't that happen to me? Because, you know, I smoked weed. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've uh, you know, snorted Coke. Mm-hmm. But it never seemed like, oh, I should do this every day. Right. It was like, oh, that was fun. Now let's do something productive. Right. Yeah. And, and um, for me personally, about 15 years ago, I went through a little phase where um, I was popping Vicodin here and there. And I noticed that um, if I did it like a couple days in a row, the next day I would get morbidly depressed. And I think what was happening was, you know, it, it makes you feel good because it messes with your dopamine and serotonin. Um, I wasn't doing it in a sense that would get me, you know, basically nodding out or anything. I, I would felt, felt energetic and good. I wasn't doing it a lot, but I would just dabble in it here and there. But yes, if I did it for a few days, I would be morbidly depressed the next day and it just wasn't worth it to me. The, the feeling of euphoria, whatever you want to call it, it just didn't compare to the depression that I would have to deal with afterward. And so in a sense, maybe that's what helped me not become an addict. I don't know, but. Well, co- cocaine's the same way. Coming, coming down off of cocaine, all you want to do is sleep and you feel like there's a, a, a two ton weight lying on you. Yeah. And, I had a similar experience where I was like, eh, if I, if I do this, I'm going to need, you know, eight, six to eight hours before I'm normal again. Mm-hmm. Eh, I'd rather not do that. Exactly. It just wasn't worth it to me. Um, and I understood well, why it's called hard drugs. I would feel it the next day or for, you know, it'd be really sluggish and just, eh, but mainly depressed. So thank God for that. Ha <laughs> ha. Maybe the only time I'm happy that I got hit with depression. Thank God for depression. Yeah. So uh, last thing, um, and this is not really a serious thing, but 
when, when you guys started the discussion and he was talking about um, smoking weed every day, mm-hmm. my initial reaction was, oh my God, don't talk about weed as a gateway drug. Oh. And I was like, yeah, we're presenting weed as a, as a gateway drug. And I was like, well, you know, that's well, how it is. Next to alcohol, is the easiest drug to get. Well, that's why it's a quote-unquote gateway drug. I mean, people don't just start out with a needle and heroin. I mean, it's just... But people, whether people are smoking marijuana or not, people are still going to get addicted to other drugs. I didn't want to contribute to that, that whole yeah. narrative because I think alcohol is a gateway drug, but we don't talk about it that way. Yeah, and I think... Most, most people start with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that anybody who knows people who smokes pot or who smokes pot and knows people who drinks and drink would know that um, pot does not have the as powerful effect, negative effect, as alcohol has and can have, period. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole nother topic. But yeah, I, I hope that we didn't come off that way. I don't think Max said that at all. I think- No, I, I, I'm i not saying you guys came off that way. Yeah, just I just, my, 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 like, good, my um, knee jerk reaction was, oh no, I hate, I hate this idea of weed as a gateway drug. Mm-hmm. I'm going to contribute to this narrative. But I just, I, I thought it was funny more than anything. Yeah. Uh, my response to it, uh, but- yeah, it was, it was very interesting that I had that reaction. Well, yeah, gateway or not, apparently my brother graduated real quick, so. Yeah. Anyway, you have any other was, questions? Or... Was that, thank, thank you so much. It was an amazing piece. Um, thank you, brother, for being so forthright and, and honest and sharing his story with us. Cool, I will do that. Anyway, all right, well, it's good talking to Frizzell, as always. And until next time. Till next time. <laughs>